like to personally thank whoever left this on my music stand. Anybody want to claim that? No? All right. That's funny. Um, real quickly, I just want to give a reminder. Last week, we announced that today, after this service, we were going to be filming a video for our team that's in, in uh, Western Asia. Uh, we had asked that you wear red. If you don't have red, but you want to stick around in here and, and be a part of filming that video, we uh, encourage you to do so. We'll figure something out in terms of the colors. But they've been over there for six months or so, and they're working as hard as they can to learn the language and to adapt to their new surroundings. But uh, at this point, you know, certainly some discouragement setting in. They've been there for a while. They realize they've got a long uh, pull ahead of them. And so we just want to be able to encourage them and, and see them somewhat. You know, they can see us at least, let them know that we love them, we're thinking about them. So we're going to do that immediately following the service here in the sanctuary. It'll take us like 10 minutes, I hear. So our missions team will lead us in that. Sound good? Uh, this morning, we're going to continue working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to do that by looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. So if you have a Bible and you want to flip open to there, encourage you to do that. While, while preparing for this over the course of the week, uh, my wife and I had numerous conversations about the topic, which is honesty and keeping your word and following through on the promises and the commitments that you make. And my wife made a pretty poignant statement, one that I think is true. She said that uh, it's more than likely that a lie is most people's first willful sin as a child. No one's got to teach you how to lie. No one has to tell you that, hey, when your parent asks you something and you think you might get in trouble, you can just say something different. You can just make something up and hope that they believe it. No one has to do that. We just figure it out on our own. I was thinking about, you know, a common scene that, that might play out in someone's home. You know, you're six or seven years old and you've invited a friend over and you're playing in the living room and whatever began as like harmless, innocent play has risen in its le level of vigor and intensity and someone bumps the end table and the lamp falls off and shatters. It's at that point that you look at your friend and you say, I think it's time that we play outside. And so you go outside and mom comes in at some point and sees that the lamp is broken. So she comes out to get you and she says, hey, can you tell me what happened to the lamp? And you say, we were outside. No, no one had to teach you to do that. You just know, I, I can just say something different. I can just lie. I was reading over a, like a political fact checker the other day following one of the recent debates, and they had taken all the statements made by all of the candidates, and they had placed them into six categories. The categories were as follows. True, mostly true, partially true, mostly false, false, and pants on fire. Those, those were the six categories that they had taken all the statements and assertions that the candidates had made and then sorted them into. And when you read those, true, mostly true, partly true, mostly false, false, pants on fire, it sounds like three of them are honest. But in reality, only one is. Six categories to drop all of those statements into, and only one of them is honest. And for most of the candidates, it was something like five to seven percent of what they had said over the course of this debate fell into that category. 
which means that like 95 to 93% was false. No one teaches us how to lie. We figure it out at a young age, and then it just lives with us for the rest of our lives. And so as we get older, we get better and better at trying to read whether or not somebody's being honest with us. We also get better and better about making our lies subtle and, and uh, increasingly deceptive. So that it, we're almost always playing this game of, is this person being honest with me? Can I tell if they're lying? And how can I say just enough to maybe not commit myself to something or vaguely commit myself to something so that there's room to get out of it? That's just how we work as humans. And what we're going to see today is that unlike some of the rest of the passages that we've covered up to this point on anger and lust and divorce, this one is very simple. We don't have to do like a lot of mental work here to understand that Jesus is saying, look, just don't lie. Just be honest. And so that's what we're going to dive into this morning. If you want to start reading with me, it's verse 33 down to verse 37 of Matthew chapter 5. Here's what it says. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or, white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. That's as simple as it gets here so far in the Sermon on the Mount. It's as straightforward as it gets. It applies to all of us. This, we all battle at times our own desire to distort the truth a little bit, so it's universally applicable. But at the same time, it's one that we want maybe to fight against the most. And here's why. Lying is one of those things that infuriates us when someone does it to us. But when we do it to someone else, we think our circumstances justified what we did. It never is justifiable for somebody else. It's almost always justifiable for us. Lying is one of those things that when somebody makes a, gives us their word and then doesn't come through on it, oh, it just infuriates us and it's maddening and it's hurtful. But when we do it, it's like, well, you see, I didn't really have an option. I, I had to. And, it, and they'll understand. That's the way it works. But Jesus says, look, the letter of the law says do not break an oath. But the heart of the Father is to be marked by simple honesty. Just simple honesty. What Jesus is doing in this passage on oaths is very, very similar to what he did in the passage on divorce. R.T. France is a scholar on the book of Matthew. He sums it up this way. A law which aims to control human failure, so laws about divorce, laws about breaking an oath that you make before the Lord, is set aside in favor of a bold reassertion of the way God intended things to be. What Jesus is going to do, he's going to take something that people at his time understood, don't break an oath you make before the Lord, and he's going to show us the heart of the Father behind that. Here's what the Lord intended there, and what God intended is for us to just be honest, for that to be who we are as his people. So here's some of the biblical context. Jesus is summarizing a number of passages from the Old Testament law from Exodus 20, Leviticus 19, Numbers 30, Deuteronomy 23. There are actually a lot of places in the Old Testament that actually made it very clear that it was okay to make an oath. And it was even okay to go ahead and swear that oath in the Lord's name. So I promise, fill in the blank, in the name of the Lord, 
I'm gonna carry that thing out. It was okay for the Israelite people to do that. The problem wasn't so much that they made promises, the problem was that they broke them. The same is true today. It's not a big deal for you to to make a promise or to give your word on something. The problem is when we break that. It's when we break our word. Last week we talked about how the root of sin runs deep in our lives. And think about this one. This is maybe one of the easiest ways to think about it. Think about how backwards sin is, the roots of sin are. We understand that if we make a promise to someone or we give our word to something and then we break that promise, that that's going to reflect poorly upon us. We understand that if we tell our boss that the numbers were, you know, fill in the blank and they come back a little bit lower, that's going to look bad. We understand that if we tell our child, yes, I'm going to do that thing, and then we don't do it, we're going to crush our child. We understand that if we make a statement to our spouse or a friend or something and then we don't come through on it, it's going to look bad for us. And yet, we still do it. Because the potential benefit is so great. If I could just pull this lie off, it will make me look better. If I could just pull this lie off, maybe I'll make a little bit more money. Maybe it'll get me a promotion. And so the potential benefit in our minds, sin convinces us, outweighs the consequence. That's how backwards sin is. That's what it does in our hearts and in our lives. What Jesus is getting at here actually comes from the third commandment. When he says, you have heard it said to, the, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Part of what he's, he's uh, referring back to is the third commandment. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. Typically, when we think of that commandment, we think about like swearing. Like, ah, don't use the Lord's name in vain. Don't, you know, use his name in a cussing sort of manner. But another thrust of that commandment is that if you made an oath in the Lord's name and then you broke it, or you made an oath in the Lord's name and you had no intention of keeping it, you were using his name in vain. There was no meaning behind that. There was no purpose for it. In fact, the Israelite people, when they're called by the Lord, are actually called to represent God to the nations that are all around them. By the way that they live and by the way that they worship, they were supposed to proclaim the greatness of the Lord to everybody who was watching, all these nations that surrounded them. You see that throughout the Old Testament. And so when they made a promise and they swore the Lord's name on it, and then they broke it, that not only looked bad for them as the Israelite people, it looked bad for the Lord. He says, don't take my name in vain like that. You hurt my character and my renown in the eyes of the people around you when you take my name in vain, when you make a promise in my name and then you break it. That looks bad. The same is true for us today. If you are a Christian, you have put your faith in God, then it is part of who you are to represent the goodness and the character and the person of God to the world around you. And when you swear something, whether you use the Lord's name or not, when you make a promise, when you give your word and you go back on that, it not only reflects poorly upon you, it reflects poorly upon the Lord. Oh, that's who God is. This person who says that they're a Christian and they follow the Lord and they represent the Lord, that's what it's all about. Lying not only makes us look bad, it makes the Lord look bad. And in their typical fashion, the Pharisees had taken this 
these commandments about making oaths, and they had put some rules around the outside of that that looked like their intent was to help people not break that commandment, not sin. Instead, what they did was they created a whole bunch of loopholes. And so starting in verse 34, that's what Jesus addresses when he says, Do not make an oath either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. He's addressing the way the Pharisees used to try to get around this. They made these distinctions between what was swearing by God's name and what wasn't. So you couldn't say, I promise by the Lord and then break that. That was a sin. But you could say, I promise by heaven, because you didn't technically use God's name. You could say, I promise by the earth or I promise by Jerusalem, because you didn't technically invoke the name of the Lord there. So if you broke it, you weren't actually sinning. They've tried to create these loopholes, but Jesus says, no, you can't do that. If you swear by heaven, that is the Lord's dwelling place. You've brought him into it. If you swear by the earth, that is the Lord's creation. It's his footstool. You've brought him into it. If you swear by Jerusalem, that is his city. You have brought him into it. Even if you swear by the hair on your head. And in fact, the Pharisees in the Pharisaical law, there was actually a provision whereby you could swear by your beard. And if you broke that, it was okay. Jesus says, no, you can't even control whether the hair on your head or your beard is white or black. God has every one of your hairs numbered. He knows the length of your days. If you even swear by yourself, you've brought the Lord into it. He is sovereign. He is in everything. He is a part of everything. He created everything. So you cannot make a promise by something and think that you did not invoke the name of the Lord. If you give your word and you break it, you're harming the character of the Lord. That's just the way it works. And as a follower of Jesus, it's the same for us. When you make a statement, God's character and renown are at stake. As a follower of Jesus, when you make a promise or give your word at all in any fashion, in any capacity, there's no getting around it. You've brought the person of God into that, and you represent him. And so when we break that, we make the Lord look bad. Jesus says, look, the letter of the law here says, do not break an oath that you've made in the Lord's name. But I say the heart of the Father is just be marked by simple honesty. Last week when we talked about divorce and adultery and sexual immorality and those types of things, the struggle from up here was to be sure that I didn't bring a lot of guilt and shame into the midst of that, but I just wanted to hold out the hope of Jesus and the, the beauty of his picture of who we're supposed to be and how our marriages are supposed to function and what our sexuality is supposed to be like. This week, it's a little bit different. I don't want to sound like your mother up here saying, now don't lie. But the reality is that's really how simple Jesus is making this. And so what should it look like? Well, it should look like if you're always honest, then you don't ever need to make an oath. You don't ever need to make a promise. Your word just is and it stands Jesus' call for simple honesty, or Jesus' call is for simple honesty and integrity at all times in all areas of our lives. The best way I can think to illustrate this is to think back to the days of being like nine years old and you're, you're with a friend and you say, hey, I promise, fill in the blank. And your friend says, do you really promise? And you say, yes, I, I really promise. Do you really, really promise? Yeah, I really, really promise. Do you swear on your mom's grave? That's extreme, but yes, I promise that. And then there was like the moment of truth. <laughs> Do you pinky promise? And you're like, wait, wait a second. I can't go to the pinky, dude. 
I can't do it. I can promise up to everything, but I will not lock the pinky with you because then now we're serious. And Jesus is saying, look, if it's only about breaking the promise that invokes the name of the Lord, what about all the other things that you've said before that? Were they, do we just assume that they're all lies up until the time you say, I swear by God? Do we assume that it's all a lie until you've locked pinkies with someone and now it's binding? No, Jesus says, look, sin runs deep in the hearts of people. We tend toward dishonesty. We tend toward saying what we need to say to make ourselves look good. Or we tend toward doing what we need to do to kind of get out of some of our commitments from time to time. He's saying be totally the opposite of that. If you're one of my followers and your heart has been humble and and changed before me, then you are the opposite of that. You're just simply honest all the time in everything that you do. That's just who you are. Really practically, if we think about it, all of society is built on trust. Parents, when you take your child to school and you drop them off, you're trusting that they're going to get an education, that they're going to be protected, that there's some level of security there. That's why when something goes wrong at a school and your child comes home and they've been hurt or something happens there, you're frustrated by it. You trusted that place. When you get your check deposited into the bank after a month of work or a couple of weeks of work, and you look online and your bank statement says you've got $5,000 there. If you went to the bank and wanted to cash all that out and they said, hey, sorry, we've only got $3,000, you'd be furious. You said you'd keep my $5,000. What happened? There's probably no more vulnerable place than the doctor's office. There's a select number of individuals that exist on planet Earth who have knowledge about the human body. I know when mine's not functioning properly, and so I go there, and I look at my doctor, and I say, hey, tell me what's wrong. And I'm trusting that the medicine that they give me or the remedy or the diagnosis or whatever is going to be true. That's how all of society works. And Jesus says, if you're going to be my follower in the midst of the world, just be honest. And that alone is going to stand out to people. That when you say you're going to do something, you do it. That when you make a statement, it's true. This means you've got to be honest in your business dealings. It means you've got to be honest in your relationships. It means you need to be honest even if it might cost you something or create an inconvenience for you. But as a follower of Jesus, it means that you don't have to work to make that happen. Your heart should be such that it's just who you are. You're just simply honest. That's what you do. It just flows out of you. Make sense? We good there? We don't need to spend a ton of time on it, I don't think. I want to zoom out here as we end today. Here's why. Jesus is building his disciples here. And he's got the 12 of them in front of him, and he's got a crowd of people out there. And what he's most concerned about is raising up those 12 individuals because he knows that he's going to die He's going to be crucified, that he's going to resurrect, and that he's going to ascend into heaven, and that because of his death and his resurrection, salvation is going to be possible for all of humanity. But the only people on the face of the planet who are going to be able to bear witness and testimony to that are the 12 sitting in front of him. And he wants to build them into followers of his who can carry that message confidently out to the ends of the world. And so when we read this sermon... A couple thousand years later, Jesus' intent is the same. 
He's trying to build us into followers of Jesus who can carry the gospel into a dark and broken and hurting world. And this picture that exists at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount of the Beatitudes paints very clearly that all of the world is sinful in this way, but a Christian is marked by Christ. And that has changed everything about who we are. Instead of being bitter and seeking retribution and those kinds of things, no, we strive to extend forgiveness. In fact, sometimes we're willing to take on and own more than maybe we should in order to extend that forgiveness to people. We flee from sexual immorality, even just with our eyes, because that's what glorifies the Lord. We stand firm and fight hard for marital faithfulness and commitment in the midst of the struggles that arise in a marriage. We just are honest. That change has happened in our heart. It's who we are. It's not just the things that we do. In very real and practical ways, the gospel, if you've placed your faith in it, changes your heart. It changes who you are as an individual. And it changes you for a purpose. It changes you for the sake of the glory of God and the expanse of his kingdom for the good of people who so desperately need to hear of the gospel. That's the work Jesus is trying to do in the 12. That's the work that the gospel should be doing in our lives today. And the result should be hearts that manifest themselves in these lives that just overflow with the goodness of who Jesus is out into a dark and broken and hurting world. As I was putting together this message and thinking about kind of drawing us back to the why behind all of the what here, I came across a sermon transcript from a pastor in early 2000s in Toronto, Canada. And what was happening in Toronto at the time was that mechanics, basically all over the city, were overcharging for services, or they were claiming that something was wrong with the car when it wasn't so that they could charge more money from somebody. Look, if the doctor's office is a vulnerable place for most of the world, the mechanic is very vulnerable for Tim Fritzen. When something goes wrong with my car, I only know of two fixes. Put gas in it, jump it. Those are the, in my mind, those are the only two things you can do to fix it. So when something breaks, I go to the mechanic and I just need him to be honest with me. Well, that wasn't happening in Toronto, Canada. And a newspaper reporter uh, who happened to know a thing or two about cars decided to set up like a little mini sting operation. So what he did was he took one wire off the end of one of his spark plugs and it made it so that his car ran very uneven. And he began taking his car to various mechanic and and auto shops all around Toronto. And what he found out is that most of these mechanics were asking him for like $500 to fix the car. Or telling him that he needed a whole new timing belt or something. And he knows all that's wrong is the spark plug wire. And so finally he pulls up to the last one that he visited. And a mechanic comes out named Fred. And Fred pops open the hood and he has the newspaper reporter turn on the car and he looks around for just a a couple of minutes and he says, ah, I know what your problem is. Turn off the car. So the reporter turns the car off, he reaches down, he pops the wire back on the spark plug and he says, you just had a wire loose. And the reporter says, oh my gosh, thank you so much. What do I owe you? And Fred the mechanic says, you don't owe me anything. Took me like four seconds to fix that. It would be wrong of me to charge you. And the reporter is so taken back because of what he's experienced at all of these other auto shops that he says, why did you not charge me more for that? 
And the mechanic said, well, a couple of years ago, I probably would have tried to charge you more or tell you that there was something else wrong with your car, but I met Jesus. And that has changed who I am. I cannot be dishonest with you. So the reporter said, thank you, and he left. And the next day, what ran in the newspaper was a picture of Fred the mechanic with a caption underneath it that was just one sentence. It said, Fred is an honest Christian mechanic. And that following week, as this pastor stood up there and he talked about it, he made the statement that Fred the mechanic had done more for the character and glory and good of the Lord in Toronto than any pastor or preacher or teacher or scholar or professor had done. Simply by honestly living out what it meant to be a Christian in his place of business and in his dealings with people. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The Sermon on the Mount says if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then you are a new person. Your heart has been transformed and the Holy Spirit is working against the disease of sin in your life and you should look different. Your heart ought to long. Not just your behavior works in such a way. No, your heart should long to extend forgiveness to people. Your heart should long to flee from sexual immorality. Your heart should long to stand firm in the midst of your marriage. Your heart should long to be honest. You should be salt in the world. You should preserve the culture in the world around you. You should pronounce the flavor of God in everything that happens. You should produce a thirst for him in the people that you interact with. You should be light. You should expel the darkness of sin. You should expose the eternal and the temporal dangers of sin. And you should extend outward and draw people in with the goodness of who Christ is. You don't have to be someone who stands up in front of a church on a Sunday morning and proclaims that message. You don't have to be a missionary who packs up and leaves and goes to a different culture to intentionally share the gospel. Your very life ought to do that because you are someone new. As, as your pastor, I long for that in my life. When I spend time with the Lord, I long to be conformed to a greater and greater degree into him, his image. And I long for us as a church to be doing that as well. I want nothing more than for a dark and broken world outside our doors here, all around North Kansas City, to get to experience the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus because they interact with us as a church. They interact with us in their neighborhoods. They interact with us in their places of business. They interact with us in their schools. They interact with us at the grocery store, whatever the case might be. You don't have to be some sort of superstar Christian, some sort of like celebrity pastor or something to influence the people around you. Our mission and our vision is to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and that begins by changed lives bumping into people who need to see the gospel. Hearts that long to glorify and honor God, just expressing themselves through the lives of faithful believers. That's how we're going to impact and and transform a community for the sake of the gospel. And that's one of the beauties of what Jesus wants to do in the life of every single person who places their faith in him. He wants to use you to impact 
the people around you for the sake of eternity. He wants to use you to impact people with the message of the gospel. So we're going we're gonna to close this morning with uh, one last song. And I want to extend an offer to you this morning. If you have been here over the last few weeks maybe, or even just this morning, and you're thinking to yourself, my heart is not in that spot. I don't have a heart that just longs to be honest, that longs to flee from sexual immorality, that longs to extend forgiveness. Maybe you've not ever really experienced in humility the work of Christ on your behalf. And if that's the case, I want to encourage you to place your faith in him this morning. You cannot behave your way into heaven. You cannot just read the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know what, I'm going to try harder and I'm going to do better. No, you've got to lean into Christ and his work on the cross on your behalf. That's the only way by which you get saved. If you're someone here this morning and you have put your faith in Christ, this song that we're going to sing um, does just an incredible job of explaining who God is and what he's done. And then the bridge says, um, my heart will sing no other name. Jesus, would we be a church who collectively and individually, our hearts just sing the name of Jesus? Let's stand together.